Welcome to the Thy Neighbor Podcast, conversations with everyday people who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. I am your host and occasional solo caster, Tracy Robbins King. If you are inspired by this episode and someone comes to mind as you listen, share this with that person. If you have benefited from the podcast, please like, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. Your ratings, reviews, and shares make a difference and allow this podcast to reach more remarkable people like you. Elizabeth Pinborough is an artist and author who helps people love their unique, lovely brains. She believes that the brain is the greatest asset any of us has and that it's vital to take care of throughout life. Elizabeth is a graduate of BYU and Yale Divinity School. Yet what qualifies her to do this work is seven years of healing a traumatic brain injury, which has required creativity, dogged determination, and a good amount of starting again. Elizabeth is based in Salt Lake City, Utah, where she can be found making poetry out of neuroscience and art out of paint, pen, thread, and cloth. Elizabeth Pinborough, you just published a book called The Brain's Lectionary, Psalms and Observations. Tell me about the journey to create this book. Thank you so much for asking, Tracy. Like, it feels like such an honor to have somebody be interested in what you're doing. And I think I just create things because I want to have conversations. And so the conversation that I wanted to have around this book was about brain injuries and their impacts. And it is just me creatively exploring the experiences I had after having a traumatic brain injury in 2015. And it was also therapeutic for me because that injury had a lot of effects, but one of the most devastating for me was changes to language processing and my general cognitive function and how my brain operates, which we all rely on for our life and livelihood, conception of self, all those things. And so, yeah, it was just me piecing my brain back together in the best way I knew how, which was through poetry and art. And so I'm going to show it off because here it is. It just came out. (laughs) But yeah, I was dreaming before my injury happened of creating a book that had my illustrations and poems in it. It was a very different project. I had different ideas in mind, but it sort of felt like one of those things that you kind of dream something that comes to pass in a different way than maybe you had originally envisioned. It's literally a dream come true for me in a very roundabout way. Can you describe the front cover to my audience who is listening versus seeing this? Yes. This is an illustration that the cover designer Christian Harrison came up with based on a lino cut that I did. I feel like it's a a gorgeous thing. So on the cover, it's this side slice of the brain, sagittal slice of uh, one of the highest, I think the highest uh, resolution MRI taken of the human brain. And I, it's of a woman, I think she's 58 years old. Her brain was imaged for science. And so on the cover, it's pink and fuchsia, one of my favorite shades of pink. It looks like a big piece of coral. On the inside, it's just black and white. This is, you know, a recreation of a scientific image. 
illustrating how much more we're learning about the brain all the time. And I mean, you see something like that and it's very flat. It doesn't give any sort of indication of the incredible complexity of the brain. And it sort of represents kind of where traumatic brain injury treatment is in the scheme, in the big scheme of things. It's not as advanced (laughs) uh, as it will be one day. And is very limited, but also just expanding, exploding. So much more knowledge being released and published every single day. It's kind of mind-blowing. Wow. That's exciting that there's progress for sure. Um, I am... So you guys, I love this the cover of this book. It is beautiful. So I will... I mean, it is just lovely. Make sure you go see... Um, follow Elizabeth on uh, her Instagram because she has... She does a beautiful job on her Instagram as well, but she it, she's got some highlights there, and it's just so lovely. So it's worth visually seeing the cover and and seeing what Elizabeth has created, which is just so beautiful. What does life look like before versus after a traumatic brain injury for you? Yeah, this is a really interesting question and is unique to every single person who has a brain injury um, because, you know, we all spend our early years wiring together what, you know, we look like and practicing pathways and certain pathways we invest in a lot. Um, I think about, you know, uh, an athlete a future athlete at say six years old practicing layups in their driveway, that same athlete at seven years old, practicing those same layups and just doing that every single year up until they become the basketball player they're going to be. You can't be that future basketball player without having gone through all of those phases at six, seven, eight, and on up. You develop your motor skills, you develop your strategic thinking, your vision, and all of these things, like your knowledge of the game, knowledge of how you work together with your team and, you know, how to function on different teams, how you are as an individual player. For me, that looked like a lot of emphasis on language, on schooling, on just being myself, which I, you know, went to college, went to graduate school. After that, I feel like life was really hard, like starting my teenage years and on with mental health difficulties. And just really struggled really hard, lots and lots of just really, really hard stuff. And so when my brain injury happened, I was in the throes of that already. Like I was already very injured, very wounded, very not okay. But that particular injury, which was one of several traumatic brain injuries that I'd had throughout my life, but it had the most severe impact. And so it affected me beyond all of those mental things that I'd grown accustomed to and amplified it by a thousand and also removed other skills that I relied on to kind of make up for those other deficit <laughs> movement, like being able to walk smoothly and quickly and get from place to place or extremely fast mental processing to be able to process large amounts of information very quickly, really high reading ability in spite of what I think were some pre-existing reading disability, but an ability to read a lot and to understand really advanced language and then be able to regurgitate it and write and process and work as a writer and editor and things like that. And so after the injury, so many of my abilities were just really cut down. Like my energy was very poor. I couldn't walk very well. I yeah had a hard time remembering words. I couldn't remember my 
life. Like I couldn't remember a lot of things that had happened to me. I couldn't visualize things in the same way. And I couldn't do that advanced mental processing without extreme effort and pain. Five minutes of trying to think in the way that I was accustomed to think would just leave me like completely bawling in tears and in a lot of physical pain. That makes life pretty hard. (laughs) If you can't walk smoothly, if you run into things, if you trip, if you, you know, nearly fall going downstairs, if you, I can't see in the same way, like my eyes were damaged and how they track. And that has a lot to do with how you're able to read. And so, you know, if you can't hold an image and scan or focus and relax easily, it's extremely energy draining for your brain to do because vision takes up a lot of brain power. It was way beyond anything that I had ever experienced and was really catastrophic. And a lot of people, my injury was classified as mild, right? It was diagnosed as a concussion, but concussion diagnostics are very poor. They use a scale kind of to measure your consciousness. So if you don't even lose consciousness, you're not even considered to have a, you know, medium to severe injury. I mean, Severe brain injuries are like extraordinarily catastrophic, but what we don't talk about in the whole conversation is how bad the seemingly mild things are. Mild just means (laughs) medically mild. It doesn't mean mild in terms of its impact on your life or your ability. You know, it was disabling. It continues to be disabling and has taught me a lot about the disabilities I was dealing with before my injury, which I wouldn't have even known to call those disabilities, but I had disabilities that I can now see more clearly because of what I deal with now. It's interesting to think about. I think naturally people will be curious, like, how did you get the traumatic brain injury? And did you have concussions before that? Did you have those earlier in life as well? Like you mentioned? Yeah, I did. I, I had three or four concussions before the one that happened in 2015, which I don't talk about how it happened because it's too traumatizing. Like it's, and I think that is a question people ask to be like, oh, can I prevent this from happening? Am I okay? Is it really as bad as she says it is? Like, I feel like we ask those questions out of curiosity and like it landed me with PTSD, you know? So like talking about it is very upregulating. It's very distressing. It will involve after this podcast, me having to like lie down and calm myself down, recalling it or talking about it is actively distressing. Brain injury can happen in so many different kinds of ways. You're seeing so many people with viral brain injury right now because of COVID and you know what it's doing to their nervous systems and to their brain, causing like demyelination. And myelin is the fatty covering of the neuron, which speeds the communication. And so brain damage of any kind <laughs> is really catastrophic for people. And you know, you can get it from near drowning or even a hit to the body. You don't even have to hit your head. Somebody can just like really cause impact to your body that makes your head move with whiplash and things like that. Even minor things and also an accumulation of seemingly minor blows and hits. There might be one that is at one point, like the thing that kind of tips your brain past its ability to metabolically recover quickly. And one other thing that I like to bring up is that symptom recovery, like feeling like you've recovered from your symptoms, isn't necessarily like biological recovery. Even one concussion like changes your brain, you know, it changes how it functions at the cellular level. 
And so it's just something to be very mindful of and very gentle with. And (laughs) I appreciate my mom so much more now because she was always one of the cautious parents who made us wear helmets to the ice skating rink, not even just outdoor rollerblading in my neighborhood with other kids, which felt so embarrassing. But thank you, mom. Helmets don't prevent concussions, but they do protect your head from being more injured on top of that. I'm filled with facts uh, that I've gained from this experience and feel like people, you know, it it benefits a lot of people to know about this um, because concussion is so kind of, it's a joke in a lot of TV shows and movies. I think of Andy on Parks and Recreation goes to the hospital with a concussion, or there's an episode of The Office where Dwight has a concussion. And you'll often hear even medical professionals on shows be like, oh, it's, you know, it's just a mild head injury. It's mild concussion. It's like, actually, (laughs) that is not accurate necessarily. I mean, a lot of people will recover in, you know, a few weeks or months, but then there's a big portion of people who also don't. So you can't really say that for people. And it kind of, I think, gives people sort of a false sense of security around actually getting hit in the head or have, you know, a lot of jolts and things to the body. How do people handle the fact that you, your, your injury is not visible per se to other people? And yet it's such a reality for you. How have you reconciled that? It's really difficult because it affects, you know, your ability to be believed or to get treatment from medical professionals or to be seen as someone worthy of or deserving of or needing help. It's not something people, unless they've had experience with it, readily jump to and say, oh my gosh, this, therefore that. This happened, which means they might be experiencing this, which means I can step in in this way. But it's also something that it requires a lot more help than is even really available to people or than is people are really able to give, even for like a mild injury sometimes. I feel like people with injuries that are considered more mild need to be put into neurorehabilitation after their injury, not just sent back out into the world with no treatment plan, (laughs) no way to follow up with anybody, and then have to while they're extremely injured and ill, using all their available energy to research and come up with treatments for themselves and figuring out, okay, well, where do I need to go? Okay. So I've seen these five practitioners. How do I make it all kind of gel together? It's difficult. You spend a lot of time trying to find the proof of the things that you're experiencing instead of people being like, oh, right. (laughs) What you're describing means that. And I have found practitioners who I go to see them and they will name things that nobody has named. And I'm like, okay, well, that explains why this thing is difficult. That explains why, you know, it feels like swallowing is hard. I went to this one dentist who was like, oh, well, you know, here are these things that are going on, you know, because he's so experienced and so neurologically aware and educated that he can diagnose things that a lot of people aren't attuned to seeing. So I I think, I mean, there are a lot of things going on, right? Even extremely educated people aren't able to keep up with the amount of information that is coming out. And what is best for one person might not be best for another person. Someone might recommend a treatment that ends up being detrimental, or maybe it's just too strong. You know, you can't take it in as easily as somebody else. So I think it's a matter of relationship 
to an extent. And I think sort of feeling that invisibility is a hindrance to relationship for me because a lot of the trauma is from talking about what happened to the people around me and saying, okay, hey, can you see this? Like, hey, I, I really can't do this. Can you do this for me? And in some cases having them say no. And that is terrible, right? Like if you need an accommodation and someone is like, no, <laughs> because they lack the capacity to help you with it. I mean, it's, it's just a human thing, right? But that stings. So it's hard to keep asking when you have ongoing support needs for them to be met or like seen in the way that they need to be seen or to have a medical professional say, oh, we'll just do this and just try this. <laughs> and you've just spent, you know, a few minutes trying to explain to them why what they're suggesting is not possible for you. So yeah, it's very difficult. I think in the early days, it involved a lot of second guessing, a lot of sort of feeling, well, what is really going on? I was pretty clear. I think some people don't because no one's telling them how serious it is. They're not able to see how serious it is. I, I was sort of the opposite. I knew how serious it was and it didn't feel like anybody was seeing how serious it was and addressing it appropriately. But even then it was sort of like, okay, well, why, why is this so serious? Like, why can't it be fixed more easily than this? Why is it so hard? Why even, you know, given these things that I've been given to do, why is this so hard? So I think it does involve a lot of sort of peacemaking, daily peacemaking with the situation and having to learn really deep down about yourself and how you function in the world and where you are now. And I think a lot of the time it is so easy because, you know, I'm not wearing a cast or using an outward mobility aid. I second guess what I know and I push and I do things that are too hard on me. And it's just, it's really hard to figure out because there is no one else who's saying, this is how much is going to work for you. And even you don't know that from day to day, you don't know how much activity or how much rest is going to be too much or too little for you. It's just constantly <laughs> taking your temperature and figuring that out. So, I mean, the invisibility of it is really challenging from an internal perspective, but also from an interpersonal perspective, because communicating doesn't necessarily mean there will be understanding either, you know, within myself or with other people. So, I mean, it's helpful to talk to other people who have the same experience because it's like, oh yeah, there's a lot of understanding in other people's experiences and just knowledge of what that's like. And it feels very relatable. It almost sounds like the people that you have found that have had your experience that that of course has been the place where it's been relieving like ah you know what i'm talking about or we can exchange information that feels like you have proper empathy for me and we can understand each other and with that by being in this position how has it changed your worldview yeah it's a good question i think some of the change happened as a result of the injury based on what I was able to do and also how it really felt like meaning was stripped away. Like the things that were most meaningful to me, I couldn't do at the same level that I could. And that is where I derived a lot of my enjoyment, like a lot of fun in writing and creating and 
brainstorming and thinking up things. And to me, I think I'll always do that because I need it. Like I need air, but it's also, I can live my life without it. You know, I had to live my life without it. Like I had to put it down and, you know, I think it makes a lot of what we consider to be kind of, you know, self-evident, I guess, in life, or maybe things worth striving for or achievements and things like that just sort of feel optional in a way where it's like, I, you know, it would still be nice, but like maybe the things I was seeking for before were not even things that were really suitable for me. They weren't feeding me in the way that I wanted them to feed me or that I needed them to feed me. And so it started to internalize to me, like being the source of that fulfillment for myself. And this is not something that I'm very good at because I still spend a lot of time coping with that loss and that sort of sense of like, okay, of my world, myself having like exploded. Now what? Now what do I do? Just like kind of having to lay aside like desires for professional fulfillment and things like that just in order to be able to heal. It's just made clear like how important self-efficacy is, like our ability to feel like we are effective in the things that we do, like that our efforts match our outputs in a way that is both sustainable for us and meaningful for us is like really a key part of human well-being and fulfillment. And to not have that is really agonizing. And that happens for a lot of people who fall chronically ill or, you know, have some sort of disabling accident or even an extreme grief, a loss of a loved one. It really does call into question how we organize our lives and like what really is most meaningful to us. I mean, I think, I don't know that it's necessarily made me more pessimistic, but I think it it's kind of grounding in a way uh, because it like puts it in the here and now and like what, what I can do with what I have. I think <laughs> we dream by design. I think we should continue dreaming. I should continue dreaming. Like I, I think it's made me feel like, well, where I am right now is valuable. Being sick is valuable. It's okay to be sick. It's not something to get over or to get better from. It can be like, if it is, then that's great too. But also like you have to value your life, whatever your life looks like. And as a culture, it would be great if we could value people that way too. And just like really invest in people as, as the valuable things they are in so many different areas and so many different life experiences. That is really beautiful. <laughs> I love what you just said there. And maybe this is what I was hearing. So clarify for me. But one of the things I heard was, I'm not my creations. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> like I published my book and I was like, huh, cool. I have a book. That's nice. <laughs> you know, like it's meaningful because it's something I've really cared about and that I hope will help other people and be meaningful to other people. And it's cool to have a book out in the world, but also it was like, okay, it didn't improve my life. <laughs> it didn't improve my self-conception necessarily. I mean, I think it, maybe I'm undervaluing it. I'm no doubt undervaluing it. Right. Like, yeah, I, it's sort of that, like you've done a big thing and then, oh, the letdown 
afterward. But like, seriously, this book is not me. I am not this book. This book contains like a tiny, tiny fraction of that experience. Like I didn't even say, you know, like any of the things that I wanted to say, you know what I mean? It's like, I couldn't even get out all the things that I wanted to say, but I made something anyway. And yeah, I want to be a person who makes, I am a person who makes. And I think it really helps me sort of, I guess, recalibrate and be like, okay, well, what do you really want to do? Like I had some ideas for after the book was done that I was kind of waiting for it to come out to see how I felt afterwards. I'm like, huh, maybe I don't want to do any of that stuff. Like it sounds nice, but what do you really want to do right now? You know, like what would really feed you? (laughs) Even if it's not something fancy that still would be cool. Like it would still be awesome, but you don't have to do that. (laughs) You don't have to do that. It's freedom to just detach in that way. And that is definitely not something I could have done beforehand. And I mean, I had so much lead up anxiety and so much creative anxiety and so much just like insecurity and still feel that as it like goes out in the world. Like I'm still like, well, uh," you know, what if it's not what people are expecting? What if it's not what people want? What if people, you know, are just kind of like, meh, that's okay. It's not for me. still worried about that. But also I don't care as much as I worry in a way, you know, it's like, why does that matter? You did a thing. Like, just be glad you did the thing and be glad for the conversations you can have as a result. Like, that's what I want. I want to be able to talk to people about things and things that matter to them and things that matter to me. Totally long answer to your summary, but yes, exactly. We are not what we make. We are not our productivity. We are not what we do even on a daily basis. I felt a lot of times like while I was recovering when like all I could do is lay in bed all day, like for years. And I would just be so struggling with it. And, you know, feeling like God was telling me like, this is okay. I'm okay with this. I'm okay. Not that I don't think God's like, well, yeah, this is what I want for you, but it's okay that you have to do this. This is okay. And there's so much like built around like productivity and, you know, like being worthwhile by how much we do. And it, it's really hard (laughs) when even you're feeling like what you're supposed to be doing is all that you are doing, which is lying in bed, watching Netflix for many, 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 many hours. Like that is it. And I mean, that in a way is ennobling, right? Like I think it helps you see people's lives in different ways. Like, Oh, that thing that they're doing, even if it doesn't look like something fancy, that's ennobling what they're doing. Like that has honor and value. And we just don't value, I think, our own lives. Like we don't value the small things we do, you know? And I don't, I definitely don't. I always want to move to the next fun thing and rush, 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 rush through the boring parts. Um, And that's, it's okay to feel that way too, but it's unsustainable for me, you know? It, It might be sustainable for some people for a while, but I think ultimately it's not sustainable for any of us. Um, I think eventually we, we get to a point where we're like, what are we, what are we doing here? Like, (laughs) you know, um, and just kind of have to get down to, okay, what's important. Um, and it's a constant, constant process. Yeah. That is very profound. I feel like there's been a lot of valuable jewels already in this that you shared with us. And I think it's because of the suffering, which I I find a hard, I have a hard time with suffering. Sometimes I think, well, I don't want people to have to 
struggle and suffer and whatever it may be, but it seems like there is tremendous growth that somehow comes in maturity through that. Yeah. I mean, I think growth can come from suffering and I don't think growth is the reason of suffering. I think some suffering is just suffering. Like I've really had that experience where it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing redeemable about this or redeeming. There's nothing positive about this. There's nothing but just pain. This is just pain. This is just suffering. This doesn't mean anything. This isn't leading me anywhere. This is just suffering. (laughs) And I think that's hard too, to be like, oh, okay. So what does that mean about what God thinks about me or my life or my the value of my life? Like, why is it okay for me to just sit here and suffer? And also to, you know, I, I know we all in our kind of global awareness, think about all of the suffering, right. And, you know, compare pain scales and rank, you know, do to ourselves what we would never do to other people, which is say, oh, well, somebody has it worse. Or why is it so bad for me when so many people are suffering in so many different ways? Or like, why do I have like financial support? And some people have to like go back to work and injure themselves further when they're not recovered. And how is it possible that my life is still running somehow? You know, I think they're just mysteries, you know? And I mean, obviously they come from somewhere, right? Like they come from family history and all these structural inequalities that create our different situations and things like that. But I feel like, I don't know what the world would look like if we didn't see pain as productive all the time. You know, I think sometimes it is, I think there is productive growth that can come from pain, but I think a lot of the times there isn't. And I don't know. I don't know what we think about that. You know, I think it's just that we're humans alive and it's painful to be human and alive. And a lot of things can go wrong, but it's nobody's fault. Right. (laughs) Sometimes it is a lot of people's fault for things going wrong, but sometimes things just happen. Yeah. It seems like there's almost, I, that is so illuminating. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your thoughts. And I think that totally changes my mind. Like, Oh, wow. Right. Neutrality. It's almost a, it's almost like a neutrality in my mind uh, regarding just saying it is neutral. <laughs> it is here and it is what it is, but it's not per se. Uh, maybe it's not as full uh, of meaning as we want it to be, though. I guess that it comes back to my mind is like Victory Frankel. used. To, he says, you know, it's more productive in logotherapy for people to find meaning in their suffering. So people can find meaning, they can pull out of it. They can find more redemption in their stories, but if they don't find any purpose in it, it can lead them down to dark, deep paths that don't feel very good. (laughs) Right. Well, this is interesting because I live in that space. Like I'm sort of a person who's of a couple of minds. I feel like my brain entertains both like the positive and the negative equally sometimes it feels like it's to my detriment, you know, in some cases, and, and I, I speak of that in like a religious context. Sometimes I feel I'm on that believing wavelength, like I am on it. And sometimes I am not on that believing wavelength and I'm just not. And so I've had to come to terms with myself about 
like what I believe and what I think and to continue to come to terms with that and to continue to try to believe even if my brain is like you believe you don't believe you believe you don't believe multiple times a day you know it's not a fun way to live <laughs> it's not enjoyable but also you know in terms of like finding meaning in those experiences I have taken back meaning from that lack of meaning in a way, you know, and that goes to the dark side of my mental experience of suicidal thoughts and feeling like there is no meaning, but it's okay to not find meaning. I found <laughs> because trying to find meaning can sometimes push you also into a dark place with the question of suffering. It was not meaningful to me to be like, this has a purpose because for me, it didn't have a purpose. It wasn't edifying. It wasn't helpful it was just pain. And so I think it's so individual, you know, I think it, in a religious sense, like pulling myself back from the precipice of there being no meaning was really like a, a meaningful part of like my latter twenties and finding my way to Christ and finding my belief in Christ to be foundational to my sense of being able to hang on in the world and, you know, just like needing that light and needing to seek out the light and also finding like through my brain injury experience, religious belief is not going to solve all of our problems. God is not going to fix everything. God, even if God could, and even if Christ can, it's not going to happen necessarily immediately. I mean, I trust in healing in the end, right? Of all the things that need to be healed. But like just being able to be in that experience of being like, okay, I can see that tiny things are happening. Like I can see all of these tiny little pieces that are coming together for me. And that doesn't mean that life is fixed or that I am better or that I feel better. I'm getting crumbs. That has to be enough. It has to be good enough for today and for years sometimes crumbs are all we have. And I trust that there are many more things happening behind the scenes than I even know or can comprehend. But sometimes even knowing that's not enough, knowing that is like painful. Okay. Right. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. I, I do trust that I'm on this learning journey, but also dang, this really stinks. Like this journey stinks in a big way. Like, even though I love the, the knowledge, even though I love the knowledge that you can still gain knowledge without having to go through some of these really intense things. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's both. It's meaning is good and you can find meaning as you need it, as you need to. And also meaning doesn't make up for all of the losses and all of the things that we have to deal with sometimes. Like sometimes we just need the support. We just need the help. If your house is on fire, you're not sitting in your house being like, oh, wow, this is a good metaphor, right? Like <laughs> you're like, we got to bail this thing out. Like we've got to get out of the house now and to safety. And I think that's what kind of like the dialogue around like trauma and spirituality comes in. We don't have a very robust dialogue around trauma and emotion and all of those things and what that does to our relationship with God or like our perception of ourselves and God or how our brains process God or, you know, any of those things. And so it's just, it's a super delicate balance. It's like everybody has to kind of do their own work and everybody 
has the opportunity to kind of like support the person, you know, and support each person as they're having their experiences. And if one person is interpreting things one way, that's valid. They need to be seen and supported in that and just encircled with love, you know? And I think that it's so hard for us to do as individuals with ourselves (laughs) to like encircle those traumatized parts of ourselves with love And then to be able to do that for another person, sometimes it's easier to do for another person. But I think sometimes because we're rejecting those traumatized parts, we reject those traumatized parts in other people because it feels dangerous and unsafe. But anyways, bringing my thought to a close, I think trauma really does change how you interpret things and how you find meaning in things. And I think safety, biological, you know, relational cultural and, you know, all of those different levels of safety are so important. Like those are the most important thing because those prioritize like the individual and like how they need to be cared for. And I know meaning can be an important ally, I think, to to those things, like so many different types of meaning and art therapy and spiritual therapies and practices and things like that. Like those are all great cohorts, you know, but I think it's, it is an individual an individual task. And like, that's what my book was. It was my individual task, like me trying to make sense of something that just didn't make sense. And it probably won't ever make sense on some level, but yeah, I'm trying to like not attach too much meaning to it too. You know I mean? Like that was the meaning I found. Cool. That doesn't have to be the last meaning or the final word that can just be like my experience. And I'm just sharing my experience. Will you read to us a poem that you feel like brings out that? So this poem was one of the earliest ones I wrote in this process and is like my experience with coming to know more about generational healing and like starting that process. And it's called The Things They Carried. The things they carried, burdens invisible, words so finely scribed in their DNA that generations and generations that held the books could not perceive them. These are the sacred mysteries, the taboos, the secrets, the untold stories and sorrows and songs. We all become singers in our own time before we read the words writ genetic. You are your family and not. You are you, the code breaker, the diviner, the sage. That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, I feel it. So thanks for for doing the work that, or just putting down what you have experienced. I read this in your introduction to the book, and it says here, if you are looking for God in the cracks of your life, I hope you will find glimmers of the light here that will lead you on to greater revelations. From the language of my written prayers, I hope you will make your own language of approach and take courage from my belief that we are never separate from God's love, no matter how distant it may feel. With Rilke, I affirm that no feeling is final. I hope for better answers, more light, and more healing for all of us, and above all things, for the courage to keep going. That is so beautiful, Elizabeth. What a gorgeous, what a gorgeous paragraph there. And I am truly touched by the power of, of poetry. And I, I feel like for myself, 
there are times where poems pull things out of me that 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 nothing else pulls out mm-hmm. just and I think music does that too right or it is poetry or whatever it may be but I think just hearing somebody express themselves in such a deliberate way or maybe it's not deliberate I don't know it can be lots of different <laughs> things but sometimes I struggle with poetry but a lot of times it just pulls the emotion so closely out and and makes it so tangible so why has poetry been a math a method for you to express your emotions yeah it's a good question um I feel like it's sort of my native language for emotional processing I mean I started writing poetry here and there when I was a child um and I was never I mean I I was sort of the writer that I am today in that you know I would write occasionally, but also continually (laughs) in that, you know, I was always trying to put something down on paper, even if it was just a little bit of a journal entry with, you know, gaps of time in between, sometimes very regularly. Um, But I think I, I, I have no idea why it must be because my mom was and is a lyricist, you know, who writes song lyrics and, you know, just talked to me so much as a baby and child. And, you know, I really connected with language, I think, as a way to kind of express what was going on. But also, I didn't really know what was going on necessarily. Like, if that makes sense, like, I didn't really, I wasn't super in tune with all of the fine gradations of my own emotions. So I had to use language and metaphor and image to kind of try to get those things out. I also used to be really confused by music in a way in terms of like how I was supposed to emote through what I was playing because in a way it wasn't my emotion that I was performing, right? I was performing somebody else's emotional experience. And that was always sort of like, huh. I <laughs> you know, I connected with it on my own in my own way. But yeah, so I I don't know. I I think just language has always been a way that I've tried to connect, connect with other people, connect with myself. I've just really been drawn to words and feel that immersive experience. And like you're saying, having things probably drawn out of me that aren't in other types of language and it's so concentrated. I don't know. I just like how, yeah, it can leave you with a feeling really fast. (laughs) And, you know, it'll linger, it'll live inside you and it'll spark new connections to other things and other ideas. And yeah, it's just, it's really, it's really potent, I think. And I believe it's something everybody can do and that we're not all facilitated to do. And, you know, maybe some people connect with it more or less, but I think it's so gratifying to me when, you know, somebody like reads a poem of mine and then go writes a poem, (laughs) you know, it's like, Yes. (laughs) Like it's the spark, you know, it does light the candle of thought for us um, and feeling, which is really cool. Is there any other poem that you'd be willing to share with us? This is um, Grief Visits Again, Swim Girl Swim. Grief Visits Again, Swim Girl Swim, Clothed in the Sea. Your red cap is fit for swimming now. Dive in, she bids. Her waters are purple. Your hopes were aquamarine. You always envisioned yourself standing in glass and transparencies. 
revealing crimson starfish on white sands, not as Gertrude Ederly in goggles and black silk departing Cap Grisnez. You are swimming the channel for Kingsdown now. You, one tiny atom of humanity, will surely meet the flood with all the bravery of a child flinging herself at rope's end into the river. Swim, girl, swim. Wow. So Gertrude Ederly was the first woman to swim across the English Channel. And um, her father taught her to swim by tossing her in the river at the end of a rope. I think like that is such a good metaphor for childhood, right? <laughs> like our, our parents doing the best they could. And, you know, maybe that was the best way to teach someone to swim at that time. I don't know. It doesn't seem like the best way for me to teach a child to swim. I will not be teaching children to swim that way. But I think growing up kind of teaches you how to deal with grief and, you know, it's your own process of maturing and, you know, learning to swim with it, you know, deal with like the difficult, really difficult tasks that are given to us. And sometimes that we give ourselves. I was on your Instagram and I saw that you had posted a poem and Mm. that particular poem for me reminded me of another poem, right? So it was kind of like they both kind of spoke to me about, um, and it was your poem, the, the Perhaps Lament, that one. Mm-hmm. You were about to be sick and not well. That one. And it reminded me of the, and I don't know why, if it was just because the, the cadence, I'm not sure, but it's also the content. I think it reminded me of um, Solitude by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. You know that one? No, please read it. The one that says, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. For the saddled earth must borrow its mirth, but has trouble enough of its own. Sing and the hills will answer, sigh. It is lost on the air. The echoes bound to a joyful sound, but shrink from voicing care. Rejoice and men will seek you. Grieve and they turn and go. They want full measure of all your pleasure, but they do not need your woe. Be glad and your friends are many. Be sad and you lose them all. There are none to decline your nectared wine, but alone you must drink life's gall. Feast and your halls are crowded fast and the world goes by. Succeed and give and it helps you live, but no man can help you die. There is room in the halls of pleasure for a long and lordly train, but one by one we must all file on through the narrow aisles of pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. oh, I mean, and, I know. and the thing is, is that in a, in a way it's like, it's still true. There are times where people do mourn with us and that we do feel their presence with us, of course. But, you know, I think everyone has to kind of go through their own pathway of that journey. Right. So no man will help you die. My gosh. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> the emotional destruction of that one. I know. I know. <laughs> um, but for some reason, when I read yours, when you were called to be sick and not well, that one when you're called to mourn not rejoice when you're called to sit in sackcloth and ash not splendorous robes it just reminded me of that right like it just brought that back to me where I was like it's Ella Willer Wilcox right but it's it's Elizabeth's version of her own I mean Elizabeth's expressing her experience but um but yours is more I feel like more optimistic so would you be willing to read the perhaps lament poem sure
When you're called to be sick and not well, when you're called to mourn, not rejoice, when you're called to sit in sackcloth and ash, not splendorous robes, when the ache of day fades to the ache of night, when friends become foes and foes strike in their might, when God beats a distant drum and doesn't warm the hearth, when sweet becomes bitter and heart wilts with fright, angels are watching from the wings and perhaps they bear up the most unspeakable things and perhaps they lift up the most sorrowful songs and breathe breaths of life into the weariest lungs and perhaps they draw maps in the stars and desperately beckon, look, here's where you are. Here's God's throne. It's not that far. Oh, such a good one. I love that so much. <laughs> but it's so much more positive, I feel like, than the Ella Wheeler Wilcox one. But I mean, there's hope in that, you know. Yours is kind of showing like perhaps angels are like watching, you know. And so, yeah, I just, it's a beautiful thing. And Elizabeth, we were going to talk about <laughs> about also the Lead Kindly Light journal, uh, the prayer journal there. But um, we didn't really get to that part because there was so much other things to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that I, I just want to quickly cover just the Kindly Light Prayer Journal and how okay. I, I have used the Kindly Light Prayer Journal. And Elizabeth has created this. And this was a self-published work, right? On this one? Yeah. yeah. And this one, of course, is a guided or what I have seen as like kind of a guidance, a, a, something to help you get your prayers on a piece of paper and to guide you through your own thoughts that you might be having and being able to receive that revelation and that guidance also from God through the pen. So tell us how that kind of came to be. Yeah. I mean, it was because I needed a prayer resource. Um, and I had signed up for a course, um, about creating a journal or planner um, and it was what came out of that it's just sort of brainstorming. And, um, yeah, I feel like prayer is like prayer is really hard. And after my, um, brain injury, it was hard because I couldn't remember things and, you know, the cognitive effort was really daunting. And, um, so it was me trying to introduce some gentleness into my prayers now, you know, for that person who's still really wounded and feeling like having a hard time talking to God. Um, and, you know, just add some creativity. I mean, there are some creative exercises in there too. I, I haven't used them myself yet. I've just done like the daily inventories and blank pages, um, which I think is interesting because like my poetry is prayer. Like that's how I pray sometimes. Um, so I haven't taken my own invitation <laughs> to, um, you know, to try to write some more prayers and or draw a prayer. I really wanted to draw a prayer this week, but I didn't. And, and I think, again, creative insecurity, right? Like you can create all the art in the world and still have a hard time, like sitting down with your own <laughs> your own thoughts and your own feelings towards God. So it's, it's a really helpful way for me to be like, okay, there's a place to go. There's a physical location where I have a book that is outside of me that isn't in my head that I can just try to, you know, get some things moving and even just acknowledge my own feelings for the day. I think God really appreciates when we acknowledge our feelings, whatever those are, and don't try to, you know, not consider them. That's what prayer feels like to me sometimes, like really getting in there and being like, oh, 
wow, I think that, or, oh, that's coming out of my mouth. Interesting. (laughs) You know? Um, And sometimes even like that doesn't, you know, fully get it, what we're dealing with, like emotionally towards God. So it was just uh, an aid, I hope, to people to be able to um, have some accessible ways to access God if they're not feeling up to it, or even if they are, you know, um, just arrive wherever they are. Mm-hmm. I love that. Arrive wherever you are. <laughs> such a good, such a good uh, invitation there. I have definitely, I've used it. I've tried almost like, I mean, I've, I've done, I haven't done everything, but I've done most of the, you know, today I feel like lamenting or giving thanks or yes. exploring my heart or reviewing my actions. And I actually love that. I love giving people like that opportunity, that invitation, like I'm going to lament and then I yes. for my heart or whatever it is, but I just, that has, I think beautiful. And then of course the, when I did my prayers for today, the first one was like, I'm grateful for my biggest concerns, people, world events. And then like, after I prayed, right. What I thought and what I was thinking versus like inspiration that I may have been receiving. Right. Cause even just discerning those things is, is a powerful tool. So and then just the invitation, like how will I take action based on what I received, right? Which I feel like is also so powerful. So I've received some amazing revelation through that tool. So I'm so grateful for you for creating it and for being such a generous person to myself. I have been the generous recipient of, of much of your goodness, Elizabeth, and your creations. And I'm so grateful for what you are doing and the creative endeavors that you do embark on, no matter whether or not we are our creations, right? We are more than our creations, but we are ultimately a creation of God. And he has a purpose for us and for what we're doing here. Um, do you have anything that you would like to share with us before we finish this up? I'm just grateful to you, Tracy. Like, seriously, you have been there for me through this process. I'm so grateful to you for showing up for me and just helping me come out of some really dark things and like being consistent and (laughs) um, just like, thanks for investing the time and effort and energy into like hearing me talk about this because it's, yeah, it's funny to like release a book and feel like, okay, I know people are reading it. What are they going to say? Like, let's talk about it. (laughs) Like I just did a thing. Like uh, how do you feel about it? are you okay with it? Are we good? Or what, right. how are you receiving what I've, what I've put out there? So I, I'm grateful for this opportunity. It makes it feel like, oh, okay, I can talk about it. I don't need to be scared of what people are thinking. It's a soft world. Like <laughs> yeah. people will receive things, you know, um, right. in a good spirit. So and I'm I think also so grateful. And I think also part of it too, for you, Elizabeth, is the fact that you do it. Like you do the thing, right? (laughs) You do the thing. And I just feel like all of us need that reminder that we don't have to be so attached to what we create to be able to create. We can all create something. We can put it out there. And and that's that's what we get to do. We get to leave a mark. Whereas I feel like, Elizabeth, people can find something that you created and they can gain something from that. Whereas so many things, so many treasures left are left inside. Yes. And they never come out because we don't get them in a place where they can be preserved. And so there is a power in this preservation, right? So for sure. 
But anyway, I love you so much. And I'm so grateful for you, Elizabeth. And I'm so excited for your book. And everyone, buy her book. Is it on Amazon? Where, where can we get your book? Yes, it's on Amazon right now. Yeah, awesome. You guys, it's the, it's the, so there's two different ones we mentioned. One, the Brain's Lectionary, uh, Psalms and Observations, and then the Kindly Light Prayer Journal. And both of them are the author, Elizabeth Pinborough. And if you look her up, you'll find her on those, on Amazon. What about other ways to contact you? Just my website, elizabethpinborough.com. 